Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly from Revelation chapter 2. Just this one letter to the church, specifically the angel of the church in Smyrna. This will be Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It was the Lord's first Lord's day of love, so we're going to pause from our series in Acts and we're going to look at the Psalm of Love, Psalm 46. Provide some context to that psalm. Let's look together at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, that you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Amen. Jesus is standing as the great high priest of his church in the midst of those lampstands, speaks to the church and Smyrna these encouraging words. You shall suffer and you shall die. Isn't that tremendous? The two things he most certainly promises is that suffering and tribulation will come, and it will result in death. The two things he urges them to do in the face of suffering and death is first, verse 10, do not fear, and second, verse 11, be faithful. What should we do as a congregation of the Lord when we face certain suffering and death? Don't be afraid. Be faithful. All the way to the end. And yet, embedded in this daunting endeavor is this promise. I am with you. I will walk with you. We have a God who does not abandon us to sorrow or death, but a God who walks with us into sorrow and through death. We have a God who makes of our sorrows everlasting life, and who makes of our death eternal glory. With this in mind, turn with me to Psalm 46. Our psalm this morning is Psalm 46. Our psalm of the month continues to be from its collection of the sons of Korah. Hopefully some of you have noticed in the last several months we've looked at psalms from the sons of Korah. We have a couple more months from the sons of Korah. You're in the middle of Psalm 46. Psalm 46, here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, the psalm of the son of Zipporah, a song for Alamon. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose 
streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Amen. And amen. There's a great day that comes in June in the life of every little farmer boy. You see, the great vast fields of grass are mown down, and the long green blades lie under the sun drying. And your father comes to you and he says, get on the tractor and break the head. And it's this great rite of passage. Your legs are finally long enough. Your head finally sits high enough. And you get to drive the tractor. For me, it was a John Deere 1050. And as I sat on the tractor, my father pointed out to me the great importance of breaking the hay to a nice straight row so that it could be bailed. And then he gave me the secret of how to rake a straight row of hay. I know this is really important information for you city slickers. You stare at an immovable object at the far end of the field. You pick a rock, a tree, a fence post, and, and you fix your gaze on that spot, and you drive straight for it. Because the temptation as a little boy is to watch the rolling of the wheels and you begin to wander with them. The temptation as a little boy is to watch the fluffing of the hay off the rake and you begin to wander with it. And instead, we need to come back to the focus of the immovable point at the far end of the field. And that is what Psalm 46 does for us this morning. We who are so readily distracted by all the cares and worries of this life need an ever-present reminder that we need to focus on Jesus. That in all of the tumult and trouble that you will face in this life, and it will be many, it will be great, we need to be still and to study Jesus. Dear friends, Jesus is always with be still and study Jesus. This is the gospel truth for you this morning from Psalm 46. Jesus is with you. Be still and study Him. Please look at the psalm with me this morning and notice at the beginning in verse 1, the sons of Korah give to the chief musician the psalm for the choir the congregation to sing. A psalm that holds out for us this promise in verse 1. That God is a very present or proven help in trouble. We have a secure lifeline. 
We have a security that we can depend upon. He is a help who will not abandon us, who will not forsake us. He is a dependable help. In fact, he's a help in two different ways, according to verse 1. He is both a refuge and a strength. You see, a refuge is a place to which you would retreat when the troubles become too many for you. He is a place you can go and find rest and find peace. But in like manner, he is a strength. That is that when you need to advance and when you need to attack, he is the source of power and energy to do so. David Brooks once observed that humans grow in this rhythm that we adventure forth and retreat back. This is the manner of growth for all humans. Consider the little child learning to walk. What do your toddlers do? They stand up, they toddle forth a few steps, and they go running back to the safety of mind. My friends, we don't outgrow that. All humans adventure forth and struggle and strive and draw upon strength. And then we retreat. Then we need rest. Is it not remarkable then that God provides for us this rhythm of striving and resting, of seeking refuge and yet exercising strength? That is to say, it's embedded in our calendar, is it not? Monday through Saturday, we work and we labor, we strive and we struggle, and we need the strength of God. But today is Sunday, and today we need a refuge. Today we need a retreat, a hiding place in which we may draw back and find peace. Whether, my friends, we are facing troubles which we must assault and overcome, or whether we are facing troubles from which we must retreat and be refreshed, we have a God who is always ready to help. He can provide us the refuge that we need. He can provide us the strength that we need. Now to persuade us of this fact, to convince us of us, indeed to impassion our hearts for this truth, the sons of Korah give us two metaphors. Two illustrations of this principle. The first is a flood, and the second is a siege. Notice the first one, verses 2 and 3. The sons of Korah sing, Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, the waters roar and trouble, though the mountains shake with its swelling. This is a poetic description of a flood. A flood in which the waters rise to such an incredible height that Edwin's itself is engulfed. Now, we're humans. We don't do well on the water. Well, I mean for long periods of time. I know that some of you do really well on the water. But we need dry land. We need a place to grow food. We need a place to build houses and roads and ride bikes. We, we need dry land. When floods rise up and the waters overtake the dry land, there's no safety for us. We find ourselves in this perilous place in which the roar and the trouble overwhelms us. I remember as a boy being on the beach of Virginia and playing the waves. And I watched one coming in and I thought, that one looks bigger. And 
got closer and I thought, that one looks a lot bigger. Pretty soon I found myself looking straight up and going, that is a lot bigger. And then there was nothing but water everywhere. My friends, we were not made to live like fish. Floods are a fearsome thing in which we are overwhelmed and cannot cope with the fear that is gripping us. But even in such trouble, we have a refuge and a strength. Because you see, the sons of Korah in painting this picture of a flood for us point us back to Noah's experience in Genesis 6 through 9, where Noah had a refuge. He had a shelter from the storm, a safe space in the midst of the flood. There was no dry land in which to live. There was no mountaintop on which to escape, but there was an ark. And inside the ark, Noah had rest. He had a refuge from the storm. But the sons of Korah look back not only to Noah, but they look forward as well to Jesus. Who you may recall in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, is lying in the back of a boat. And he's fast asleep. And the rain is pelting down. And these professional sailors who make a living catching fish are terrified and go running to the back of the boat screaming, Master, do not care that we are perishing. Pleading for their lives. And he stands up. And he says, Hush. Be hush. The wind stops, the waves die down, and it's immediately calm. We have a refuge, an ark in Jesus Christ in which to find rest. But we also have a God of strength who can calm the storm, who can quiet the waves. Dear friends, we have a refuge and a strength in Jesus Someone in whom there is rest when the waves and the water are pounding us. When we are filled with fear and we tremble. When we are filled with terror and dread. And said, I'm no match for this. We have somewhere to hide. But we also have someone who can overcome. Someone who can triumph over the storm and bring peace. But perhaps you're not facing a flood. Perhaps instead you feel like one besieged. This is the second metaphor. In verses 4 through 6, the sons of Korah turn us to the city of God who is surrounded by raging nations and by kingdoms who are tottering. The world is an insecure place politically. It's just not unique to our society. I know that our world is looking rather chaotic and bad, but my friends, thousands of years ago, the world was as chaotic and bad. The kingdoms of this world have always risen and they have always tottered and raged, and in the midst of it has been the kingdom of God standing steadfast. Once the world was covered by the Greek Empire, it is gone. The church stands. Once the world was covered by the Roman Empire, it is gone, and the church stands. Once, my friends, the world was covered by the British Empire, it is gone, and we stand. One day, my friends, the American Empire will come to an end, and in her shadow, 
and in her dust and ash, the church will stand. There is a river that runs through the course of this city, giving everlasting life, so that that city cannot fall, no matter who besieges it. No matter how many enemies ring round its walls, it cannot come down. For in the very heart of it is everlasting life bubbling up into flowing water. This is in fact what Jesus claims for himself. When he on the high day of the great feast stood up and cried out, Come, any who thirst and drink from me, and springs of living water will come up within you. Jesus is that river that John dreamt of in Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus is that everlasting life that flows through the heart of the church, that she might endure throughout all ages, undiminished and undeterred. My friends, at the break of dawn, there is a refuge for us. A city, not simply a city of refuge like old, but a city of everlasting refuge, where we who are guilty must flee to that place of protection. There is this sanctuary in which we hide, not one filled with heat and dark pews, not one wreathed in masks and plexiglass. There is a heavenly sanctuary to which you have access through Jesus Christ, a city that cannot fall, a city that stands forever. Indeed, he points us forward again to that boat in the storm in verse 6. For he utters his voice, and the earth melts. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke, and it was. He said, light, let there be light. And there was light. But then in Mark chapter 4, he stood up in the boat, and he said, silence, let there be silence. And there was. He says to the kingdoms of this world, fall. Be fallen, and down they come. There are no enemies, my friends, that you cannot outlast. There is no sin and sorrow for which you cannot find a refuge in Christ. There is no grief, no pain, in which you cannot find the strength to try again in Jesus. He is indeed the shelter in the storm. He is indeed the strength to quiet the storm. He is indeed the refuge from our besieging enemies. He is indeed the peace to which our hearts seek. This they point us to in verses 7 and 11. As they transition, the sons of Korah leave off a song of poetry in which they are painting a picture for us, in which they're giving us this metaphor. And in verses 7 and 11, they turn their attention to this poem of symmetry. I'm going to use a fancy word because some of you know what it means because it proves I'm in the seminary. It's called chiasm. This is what we see. Verses 7 and 11 are bookends. They're the same phrase. You see the symmetry there? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. When you see that kind of repetition, you think to yourself, there's, there's a pattern here. There's a symmetry here. And then it works its way in, verses 8 and 10. And so the very center of it is verse 9. But these bookends hold out to us the identity and security that we have in our God. 
He is on the one hand Lord of hosts. He is on the other hand the God of Jacob. And these two comparisons could not be more different. The hosts of which he is Lord have no resemblance to the Jacob of which he is God. You see, by calling him the Lord of hosts, the sons of Korah point our attention heavenward to all the angelic beings who rest in glory and say that he is the awesome, almighty sovereign of the angel armies. But he is also the God of Jacob. You know, Jacob, the one who wrestles with God. You know, the one who had four wives, twelve kids, and a soap opera existence. You know, the heel grabber, the deceiver. On the one hand, we have a God of immense transcendence. On the other hand, we have a God of intense heavens. A God who is great and glorious above the highest heavens. And yet a God who is very near to us and very dear to us. A God who is beyond splendor and majesty, ruling over the most glorious creatures never beheld in heaven. And yet a God who walks with sinful humans hand in hand. He is Lord of hosts and God of children. He is with us and a refuge to us. He is our defense when the floods rise. He is our defense when the enemies besiege. He is the safe place in this world. He is with us. And so the psalmist finds in verse 9 that he brings peace. This is that center of the parallels, the center of the chiasm, in which the sons of Korah point us to the consequences of God's presence in the world. Verse 9, he makes war cease the ends of the earth. That is, he makes all war cease. The ends of the earth are the utter extremities. This Hebrew idiom means that everything in between, no war will remain. He breaks the bow, he cuts the spear, he burns the chariots. He rids this world of the weapons of war. He takes out of the hands of humans their military might. We would say it in our modern language, he sinks the aircraft carriers. He brings down the F-35s. He extinguishes the flame of the nuclear war. He makes of the power of nations nothing. He makes of the might of our military dust and ash. He is the God who establishes on the earth the kingdoms that rise and he brings them to an end when their time is up. He is a God for whom there is no rival on earth. A God great and awesome in whom there is safety and shelter for us. Beloved, a God you can trust. This is the God we are called to worship in the song. The God of Jesus Christ, who is with us, bringing peace. Isn't it striking that the sons of Korah, which is the same, of a refuge and a strength that is ever with us? That if the waves rise up, we are drawn, safe in Christ. That if the enemies besiege, we are safe in Christ, defended well by Him, indeed tearing down strongholds and prevailing against the gates of our enemies. But then in verse 9, we find peace established over the 
whole earth. And this is a great comfort, is it not? This is a great joy to our hearts. But if we have in this Jesus an immediate refuge and defense, an immediate strength that shall not fail, so that the floods we face need not fear or fill us with fear, so that the enemies that besiege us may not steal our hope, what then should we do? How then should we spend our time if we need not spend our strength trying to desperately row our little boats to shore, but rather trusting that Jesus is in the boat with us to save us? If we need not spend our strength trying to disarm our innumerable enemies, when we can instead trust the mighty warrior who fights for us, what then shall we do? How then shall we spend our strength and our time? The sons of Korah give you two activities. First, in verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord. My friends, stop and see the wonders of God. This morning, at the edge of dawn, I was sitting on my back porch, dreading and fearing how I would end this song. And as I was sitting there, praying, begging God for clarity and conviction in this, in this sermon, the birds began to sing. The sky began to lighten. The breeze began to stir. And all at once, out of the darkness of night, we could behold the works of God. When was the last time there was dirt under your fingernails and grass under your feet? When was the last time you beheld creation and saw the works of God and understood the greatness of His glory, the splendor of His power, the intensity of His wisdom? When was the last time you picked up history, biography, theology, the Bible, and beheld the works of God? Are we not so often like Peter? Tempted to step out onto the waves of the storm and to stare at the spray in our face instead of the Savior who is bearing us up? Are we not so readily taking our eyes off the works of God and fixing them on the problems? When a problem rears up in our face, when sin and sorrow stare us in the eye, is it not our swift effort? find a solution? Is it not the instinctive human response? What is the nature of this problem? What are its contours and its shapes? How do I solve this? What is the answer? And the sons of Korah say, that is not where we start. We start by staring at the works of God. By putting our problem in perspective. By holding up the greatness of God against the smallness of our flesh. There must come to us a humiliation so that there might go to God an exaltation. My friends, come, behold the works of God. But secondly, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. We have two teachers from RV Missions that says, be still and know, dot, dot, dot. The first day I wore that t-shirt around the city of Cambridge, someone I didn't even know, like most of the people 
people I see on the streets of Cambridge, came up to me and said, that's a great t-shirt. I know where that came from. And I was like, what t-shirt from where? And then as I remembered, I realized it is a great t-shirt. Isn't it wonderful to be summoned to silence? I know the introverts are screaming. Going, yeah, not so much. And all the introverts go, this is my favorite passage in the Bible. Be still and know that I am God. As an introvert, it's one of my favorite themes. You come to Exodus 14, and the people of God are trapped between the Red Sea, the floods of death, the waters of doom. Remember, these people don't swim. There's no culture of swimming back then. And the armies of Pharaoh, besieged by their enemies. The exact same metaphor that the sons of Korah use in this song. They are trapped between two slices of serpent's death, sandwiched into this doom. The armies of their enemies are all around them, and the only way of escape is blocked by the floods of the Red Sea. And in the very middle of that story, Moses turns to Israel and says, The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Dear friends, we have only to hush these whining hearts. We have only to hush these fearful minds. We are to be still and know that He is God. If we would lay down our weapons, we would find Him a mighty warrior. If we would lay down our striving, we would find Him a great king. If we would surrender and say, yes, He is God and I am not. If we would but be still, we would know He is God. There is nothing our flesh hates more than prayer. Because prayer is the ultimate expression of our powerlessness. I want to strive. I want to plan. I want to struggle. I want to work. And the sons of Korah say, no, be still. Be still and you will see He is God. You will see Him act. You will see Him move. My friends, let us cultivate this part. For then we have a Savior who proves Himself glorious, gracious, and good. This is the conclusion then of verse 10. I will be exalted among the earth nations. I will be exalted in the earth. If we are resolved that we are not the heroes of this story, that we are not the victors, that we are the baggage and the train of a great king who is marching to glory, and we get to go along with the parade. If we understand rightly that Jesus is the refuge in the flood, the ark to which Noah was pointing, if we understand that Jesus is God in the flesh among us, mighty to save, strong to overpower the storm. If we understand that Jesus is the river in the midst of the city, that Jesus is the wall around the city, that He is the voice that melts the rocks and mountains of the earth, that He is the refuge, the Emmanuel, 
That He is what is revealed to us in the works of God. That He is the one exalted in all the things God does. Then, my friends, we know we can be still. We can be still and know that He is God. He is exalted among us. One of my favorite stories about the Shorter Catechism. You guys are all memorizing the Shorter Catechism, right? You're teaching your kids to memorize the Shorter Catechism. There's a, a great story that can inspire you to memorize it. See, in the 19th century, there was a great earthquake in San Francisco. In fact, there were several. But during one of them, riots broke out, panic seized the city. There was a gentleman visiting at that time, rather inconvenient, and as he was walking down the street, he saw another gentleman coming toward him. And while all the city was filled with panic and dread, filled with worry and care, this man was walking and whistling and having a grand old time. The first visitor went up to him, thumped a finger in the chest and said, what is man's chief end? Alarmed, the man looked with shock and said, Boy, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy the river. And the first man said, I knew you were a catechism boy. Only people who know the sovereignty of God have such a peace. Be still and know that I am God. If we are resolved that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we shall always have what we if our life's mission is to exalt God in everything we do, then my friends will never fail, for He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. If it is the glory of God for which we aim, then we shall never miss our mark, because He is truly exalted in all things. This is the hope that is set before us. I want to leave you with one last word. It's the word Selah. It appears three times in the psalm. It is the last word in the psalm. The sons of Korah tell you here at the end of the sermon, at the end of the service, Selah. It's a Hebrew word. We're not 100% sure what it means, but it means something on the order of stop and think about this for a while. Contemplate. Meditate. My friends, you have a whole afternoon ahead of you. Why don't you spend it still? Be still and know that He is God. Your Jesus is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Take time to be still and to study Him. Your friends, Jesus is with you. Be still and study Him. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day you have made. We thank you for the brightness of the sun illuminating the earth, and we thank you for the light of your word. That in its opening and unfolding, the radiance of Christ comes out to us. We give you thanks, our Father, for the sweetness of our Savior. That he is a place of rest when we need to retreat. That he is a source of strength when we need to attack. That he is indeed shelter from the storm and a city of refuge from our enemies. 
that he is indeed hope in the face of death, healing in the face of disease, that in Jesus we have all we need and we pray, Father, that we would remember that we have Jesus. We pray that you would write these words upon our hearts and set them in our minds to meet this day, this week. Might as we face our problems, turn and face Jesus. That as we see our sin and see our sorrows, we might look past them and see our Jesus. Father, grant us the grace, the strength, the discipline to set aside the worldliness that distracts us, that slows us. That we would make time and devote time to being still and to studying Jesus. We pray that this would be so. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.